you know, I speak now. And when I go to schools and speak, my beginning of the, of the talk is I put the word impossible on the screen, impossible. And I submit to all of those kids that that word does not exist. And it's been mispronounced and it's actually pronounced. I'm possible. I am apostrophe M space possible. And that is, I hope what the real story of this is, which is absolutely everything and anything is possible. If you choose to believe. Welcome to the Feel Good Running Podcast, where our goal is to keep you motivated, inspired, and energized. As a runner, or perhaps you are looking for the right motivation to become one, you've definitely found the right place. We share inspirational stories from real runners, motivating running-related information, and much more to help you feel good about your running. And now your host, and a longtime Feel Good Runner himself, Jim Lynch. Well, hello, runners and those that want to be runners and experienced runners and new runners. And even if you're even thinking about running and haven't run yet, I'd like to welcome you. My name is Jim Lynch. This is my podcast, Feel Good Running, and you are here for episode number 16. And I'd like to welcome you. You know, I always say you have a lot of choices for great running podcasts out there, and you chose to listen to mine today. So I cannot thank you enough. Well, it's been a while since my last episode with Bart Yasso, and I really need to apologize to you. I hope you stick with me. See, what was going on is the Maui Marathon. I'm co-race director, and that took up a tremendous amount of time over several months, and it took me away from the podcast. Well, the marathon happened. It was a success. There was a lot of participation this year, and I can't thank all of the runners that came out here enough. We have a full marathon, marathon relay, a half marathon, a 10K and a 5K, and the participation was amazing. We had five people finish their 50th state this year. Four of them were for the half marathon and one gentleman was for the full marathon. And as a matter of fact, his wife was one of the ones that finished the half marathon too. And we had a proposal at the finish line. We had this arranged with this gentleman well in advance. And what happened was he crossed the finish line earlier, half marathon, and his future bride-to-be, she's a slower runner. She's a, like a fast walker. So it took a while for her to come in. So we had him and his family and had them hiding behind the arch at the finish line. And when she came across, he went ahead and proposed, got down on his knee. And we had the DJ play Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic because that's the song that he wanted. And it was so wonderful. And you're probably wondering, did she say yes? Well, yes, she did. It was quite emotional. She was crying and it took her a little bit to gain her composure. And she just crossed the finish line from the half marathon. But she eventually said yes. And it was a wonderful moment. One of those moments that putting on a race... You don't forget, this will be in my memory bank for a long time. We also had Peter Sagal. Yes, he spoke twice at our expo and he ran the full marathon himself. And if you don't know who Peter Sagal is, he is the author of The Incomplete Book of Running 
and he also is the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. So all in all, the marathon was awesome. And that's all I got to say about that, except next year is the 50th year of the Maui Marathon. So I don't know what you got going on in 2020, but you may want to think about coming out to Maui and running that event, one of them. You know, whether it's the full half, 10K, 5K, whatever you want to do, come on out. It's beautiful. Weather is beautiful. Registration hasn't opened yet, but if you go to MauiMarathon.com, you can make that a bookmark and have it as a wish list run for 2020. All right, coming up in just a little bit is my conversation with Jason Romero. You are not going to want to miss this conversation. This is one episode that I will say, Listen to every single word. Jason has really changed my life. He has. In just a short amount of time, by reading his book, knowing his story, and then to be able to sit down in person with Jason and have a conversation, uh, just an incredible person. So don't miss it. All right. Uh, what do we got? Oh, I went to Denver, Colorado. Loved it. Loved Denver. Just love Denver. I took off a few days after the marathon to visit family. My little grandson, Carson, got to play with him quite a bit and uh, bond. I just love Denver. Saw some of my friends there. I volunteered at an aid station at the Denver Rock and Roll Half Marathon, which was great because I didn't have to do anything except pour Gatorade and hand it to the runners as they came by. I'll tell you what, get out there one time in your life and volunteer at a race, no matter what you do. We had so many volunteers at the Maui Marathon, but that's how races continue. They need volunteers. Even if you're handing a cup of water to a runner, that's a very important position. And it's a very rewarding position too. So volunteer, it's absolutely awesome. You'll love it. I guess that's it for Denver. All right, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of things. I just want to say three things. Number one, congratulations to everybody that qualified for the Boston Marathon. By changing the times by five minutes, more of you that qualified actually are able to get in. And I think that's wonderful. And that was a lot of work on your end. And you did it. And if you got in, congratulations. And thank you to the Boston Athletic Association for changing the times and giving more people an opportunity to be able to get in the race that have qualified. The second thing is, what an amazing thing to happen in the running world. Elliot Kipchoge broke the two-hour marathon threshold. He ran it in one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. Now, I know that this was all set up. It was scientific, very analyzed and calculated. He had pacers. He had the course to himself. There were lasers on the ground in front of him showing him exactly where to run. But he did break it. Now, this is not counted as an official record. But what it does, in my opinion, It takes that mental barrier about the two-hour marathon and prove that it could be broken by a human being. It certainly happened after Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. It seems afterwards it broke that mental barrier and others were eventually able to break the four-minute mile also. So let's see what happens. My prediction, this is my personal prediction, is that the two-hour marathon will be broke at an official sanctioned marathon within the next three years. I just have that feeling. So we'll see what happens. 
The third thing I want to talk about is I'm changing up the show a little bit. If you've listened to any of my episodes thus far, you know that I do an inspirational, motivational segment on news where I pick out stories of runners who have a really unique story. I do about two or three of them per episode. I'm not going to do those anymore. The reason is, is I want to get to the conversation with the guest a lot quicker. I have a few things I usually say at the beginning, but I want to get right to the interview. But what I am going to do will be separate episodes of inspirational and motivational news. Now, these are going to be little mini-sodes, maybe 10, 15 minutes long, maybe a little bit longer than that, depending on what news stories are out there. But that way, I can focus in on those. And if you want to hear some inspirational, motivational stuff, you can listen to that. And then on my conversations, we can get right to that immediately after my blab fest. But what I am going to keep into every single episode at the end is the motivational, inspirational quote. Of course, I need to keep that in. You need to be motivated out there. Oh, yeah. And one final thing for all of you listeners out there that did a fall race, whether it was a full marathon, half marathon, 10K, 5K or whatever, congratulations on finishing. I know you put a lot of work and effort into it, and I really hope you're pleased with your result. I am so proud of you for getting out there and getting it done. And isn't it rewarding when you cross the finish line? It's just an amazing feeling. So congratulations. All right, let's move on with this episode's absolutely amazing guest. Oh my, where do I begin? My guest this episode is Jason Romero. Now, a little background. My friend Ted Dunst in Denver sent me a text and said, you need to check out this guy, Jason Romero. Get his book. It's called Running Into the Dark. He has an amazing story and he would be a fantastic guest for your podcast. So I got the book digitally and I never really looked much at it mostly due to not having enough time. And finally, it just kept eating at me that I I needed to read this book. So the easiest way for me to do it was to get the audio version, which I did. And I listened to it when I went to the gym or if I went out on a run, I would listen to chapters. And I got so involved in this book and Jason's story. As I was listening to each chapter, I was getting emotionally involved in Jason's journey and There was parts of it where I was so emotionally involved, my eyes were tearing up because I could relate so strongly with what he was going through that it would trigger emotions that were deeply embedded inside of me based on some of the experiences in my life. So let me tell you a little bit about Jason. At around the age of 14, he was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa and his eyesight deteriorated. And over time, he became legally blind. Now, Jason is an absolute amazing runner with an extensive resume of running races. And I suggest that you go to the show notes and go to his website and see a list of all of them. But I'll tell you a couple of them, the Badwater 135 Ultra Race, the Leadville Trail Race Series, where he became a lead man. And he's done the trail run portion of Leadville five or six times. Leadville was featured in that book, Born to Run, that was out several years ago. 
He's a three-time Ironman, and he holds 16 world records in the blind and visually impaired division. But Jason's major accomplishment was being the first and only blind person to run across America. Yes, 3,063 miles. He started Santa Monica and finished in New York City. He did this in 59 and a half days, averaging 51 miles a day with no days off and no guide. His mom was his crew person. He is still ranked as one of the top 10 fastest foot crossings across America, which less than 300 people have completed. So what I want you to do is I want you to order his book. It's in hardcover, paperback, audio, or digital. But get his book and read it or listen to it, whatever you want to do. And the second thing is in the show notes, there's a YouTube video that he actually made only a few months ago before he did the Leadville 100 trail race this year, 2019, that he explains what he can see. And it will really help you to understand more and and really appreciate how amazing Jason is. You can find this link and even the link to buy his book in the show notes at feelgoodrunning.com. Now it is my sincere honor and pleasure to bring you this amazing conversation with this amazing man, Jason Romero. So it's really good to be here in Denver. I really miss this city. It's beautiful. You're not in shock being here from the island? Well, you know, your your body goes through a little bit of a shock, but it just took a little bit of time. I just love this city. It's really good. And I'm so glad to have you on, Jason. This is really an honor. I read your book. I watched your video. Your accomplishments in life are amazing. And uh, I'm so glad to share this with our listeners out there. You know, when I read your book... And I want everybody to know, because right at the beginning of this, I'm going to push it. So you go to the show notes to be sure you order his book. It's called Running Into the Dark. And it's, uh, it's an amazing book. How long did it take you to write this? Nine months straight. What's it like writing a book? Uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, because I'm not an author or a, <laughs> by any means uh, a writer, I would say. But... Um, it was extremely difficult. In the first month, all that I had done in the entire book was one paragraph. It was just a tremendous amount of, you know, tick, 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 delete, 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 tick, 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 delete, you know, trying to figure out how I would do this. And then after the first month, you know, it was like writer's block for an entire month. And uh, then it just started flowing. And then it was like in the zone. And I treated that just like my work Monday through Friday eight to five, I would sit in front of that computer and I would just type for eight hours and uh, until I was done with the book. I think it was very well written. Actually, I told you before we started this that I got the audio version and I would listen to it when I go to the gym and when I go out for some of my runs. And I was so enthralled with everything. You even had some parts in there that had tears coming down my eyes. I appreciate you saying these things because actually the genesis of the book was not I didn't write the book to put it out there. I wrote the book because I had embarked on this speaking career after running across America. And uh, my audience members uh, had asked me, you know, do you have a book? I was like, no, nah, I don't have a book. And they'd say, every speaker has a book. And my kids, a lot of times, would drive me to these speaking engagements. 
And when they would hear me speak, they would say, Dad, I didn't know that part of your story. And what I realized was my kids did not understand the full story for how I got to this particular moment. So I thought as a father and for what I've been through, my kids need to know that story. And they were, you know, they're still probably too young to process everything that's happened. So I wrote it really as a journal for them to understand what was happening. And my plan when I finished was to basically print it out, bind it, and put, I have special boxes for them and put a copy in each one of the special boxes. And when I pass away, maybe they'll open the special box and read this book. And read the book, yeah. And uh, my oldest daughter convinced me, she's like, dad, this should be published. And uh, that's how it actually ended up. So I wrote it, you know, I put my whole life out there uh, and it's scary. Uh, It's vulnerable. Sometimes I get critical review from it. I'm like, wow, just critical review of my journal and it hurts and it stings, but yeah, I think it's the right thing because I do get feedback. Like you had told me that it, it means something to you. So um, it's it, a good thing to it, do. It, 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 uh, it does mean a lot to me. Actually, I was telling you beforehand, I think I'm going to get more out of this than you are going to get out of this uh, interview because it's uh, it was so inspiring. And um, what I felt when I read it, I was absolutely amazed at what a wonderful father you are and how much you care about your children, Sierra Sage and Sophia. Mm. I thought, you know, you, you really were struggling in a lot of parts of your book thinking about them, especially when you were going out to do Transcon Run across the USA, uh, leaving them for two months. That was really struggle for you. And the other aspect of the book that I got was how close you were to your mom. Hmm. Your mom being your your crew person when you went across the U.S. and it, it it was amazing to to read how close you were to your mom and also how it was to be with her for sixty days and then <laughs> the good times and you even had some struggles where you were silent and wouldn't even talk to each other but <laughs> but she would never left you and you never left her so that was that was really good so you you're really raw in your book as far as honest, open, and you don't hold anything back. Let's go back to the very beginning. And this is before you even started running, but you were really young and your father left your mom and that had an impact on you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's probably true with a lot of people who come from a broken home, if you will, or come from a, a divorced household. Um, my dad, my mom got divorced when I was two and we would see him every other weekend. And, uh, it's still something that I struggle with because, uh, I don't have a very close relationship with my father. But the other thing that I've come to grips with as well is, you know, I love my father because he is my father and I am who I am today because he is my father and I'm grateful for that. And that has been an extremely long, arduous journey to be able to say those words in a meaningful, authentic way. And the behaviors that go behind that, it's been a lot to process. Um, it's, uh, it's a journey, um, you know, but one thing that my mom has always told me and I share with other people as well is, uh, she's always told me, you know, kids generally speaking will turn out okay, as long as there's one parent that believes in them. And one thing that I have experienced in life is I've seen and had friends and kids who have no parents who believe in them is really if we all have one person who believes in us, just one person, uh, 
it's going to be okay. And um, that's really the lesson, you know, from having my dad, my mom split up. My mom was my leader, is my hero. Uh, she taught me all the values that I know and that I model and that I try to impart uh, upon this world. And she is a tremendous, tremendous woman. I was a very lucky and fortunate young man to have her as my mother. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I could tell that from the book. Um, and, I, you know, I agree with you on that. I, my father passed away when I was 10. And my mother was, you know, really inspirational in raising me as a wild, crazy teenager. <laughs> but she believed in me. And then I had brothers that did, too. So, uh, you know, I'm now 62 and still alive and healthy. So something went right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and you, you've been smiling and inspiring, and uh, I feel good around you. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Thanks. So you were in, uh, in school, and you had to do normal tests at the nurse's office, um, and you had your hearing test. And then what happened? Tell me what happened. Yeah, I didn't see this one coming at 14. Um, so... Uh, I had went to school one particular day, and uh, we had the hearing and the vision screening that particular day. <clears throat> and we had them years prior, and nothing had happened, so I didn't think anything of this. And, you know, my class lined up. Uh, I took my turn. You know, I put on the headphones, pressed the button when I heard the sound, read the eye chart. And the nurse called me back afterward and said that I had needed glasses. And that was strange to me because I thought, that I read the chart fine. I was looking straight at the nurse and I, I told my mom because uh, I figured we had to humor the nurse. I had to go at least you know to lens crafters or whatever to get glasses. And we went in and they tried to fit me for glasses to correct my lens uh, issue or so I could read the eye chart and they could not correct it with eyeglasses. They looked deeper into my eyes and they said I needed to see a specialist. And I went specialist to specialist until finally I got this diagnosis of something called retinitis pigmentosa. And that means that basically the back of my eye, the retina is dying. And at age 14, I was told that I was going blind, that uh, I would probably see nothing. My retina would become totally um, non-functional by the time I was 30 years old. And most blind people don't work and I should learn to do something with my hands. And uh, it was quite shocking. I'm not so sure I really processed it or what was happening at the time because as a teenager, I felt like I was invincible. But what I can tell you is when I got that news, my mom, the strongest person I've ever seen, uh, you know, Wonder Woman, we went out in the parking lot after I received that diagnosis and she blew up our crying. And that was the first time I'd ever seen my mother cry. And, uh, yeah, I can't remember many things at yeah. age 49, but yeah. as we sit here talking, I can still see that scene uh, in my mind. And I realized that, uh, you know, this is something, something serious. Something serious, right. Yeah. And, and you, were, you were still at 14 able to see pretty well at that point. I thought I saw fine. I thought yeah. everybody saw like I saw. Yeah. I mean, the, the differences were my acuity was off. So when I was in school, there was a chalkboard in my day and I would always sit in the back of the class, but I couldn't see the chalkboard. And I figured that nobody could see the chalkboard. And when we read in class, you know, sometimes a teacher would say, okay, everybody read your books for 30 minutes. My eyes could only sustain focus without being fatigued and not being able to see for like five minutes. So 
I would read my book for five minutes and I couldn't see anything. I'd look around, everybody else is flipping the pages and I would pretend to read and I would be flipping the pages and I thought everybody was doing the same thing that I was doing. Yeah, yeah. So it was good to know actually that I was different. I was like, oh, I guess I don't see like everybody else sees. So I need to adapt. Well, you also probably had to think at that point and it wasn't exactly at that point, but there was a point where you probably were scared wondering what the future is going to be like because when a doctor says jason you're going blind that's probably not the best thing to hear and then you know how you were going to function in the world and you did there were uh as a teenager i'm a very sensitive person and um as a teenager i can remember many times being alone in my room and uh thinking about those questions and crying uncontrollably uh, punching pillows, you know, biting pillows. Don't I didn't want anybody to know that I was scared. I didn't know how to process those emotions. Um, and you know, it was terrifying to me. It was terrifying to think that my one day it would be like black, like I would see nothing because I'm scared of the dark. I mean, right. you know, I have light perception then and I have light perception now. But you turn off the lights and. I become claustrophobic. I'm scared of the dark, and all I could think was, you know, it's like suffocating. Right. What I th- and even like right now, I'm talking to you about that, and I get that suffocating feeling, yeah. like I'm feeling claustrophobic. But uh, you know, back then, I remember a lot of times in secret, you know, crying, punching pillows, and really, it wasn't until I put this in my book too that that had happened. And it wasn't until I put out the book just a couple of years ago that you know my family and friends and people knew that I had gone through that, and. Uh, I don't know why I thought they they would have known, but I figured everybody would have known somebody who's struggling with something has those very difficult moments. Yeah, yeah. I think we all do. And it's amazing what people do not realize in your life. Now, Uncle Ted. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow, you're going to bring this guy up. Well, I, I thought that that was pretty pretty cool when I when I was uh, reading. I you went up to uh, see Boulder because he was doing a race. Yeah. And how old were you when you went and saw Uncle Teddy's race? I was in my teenage years. In teenage in years, it was yeah. before before running, and that had an impact on you. Yes. Tell me about Uncle Ted. He was hunched over and yeah. just kind of shuffling along. Uncle Ted Epstein. Uh, one of the greatest athletes that I've ever personally known in my life. Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned this scene, and uh, we were at the CU Fieldhouse, and my stepfather, Fred Epstein, his brother, had told me we're going to go watch his brother in a race. And it, Uncle Ted was a lawyer back in the day, but at age 50, he decided, I'm going to hang it up, and I'm going to go be an artist, a creative type, and I'm going to, you know, I like endurance sports. I'm going to start doing endurance stuff. And, you know, my stepdad would tell me these stories about Uncle Ted, you know, going off doing crazy stuff. And but there was some race up at the CU Fieldhouse, and we were going to go see him this particular weekend. So we go up there, and as you mentioned, we go into the CU Fieldhouse. There's a one-eighth mile indoor track there. No lights are on. There's no people there. Uh, I I thought we we're going to see a race. You know, I figure we see the geriatric Olympics. You know, people with like walkers, you know, shuffling down a track. Right. And uh, instead. We walk in there and there's this silhouette that looks like a human figure and it's kind of barely moving. And we get closer and I'm confused because I'm, I walk into this scene with my stepfather, my mom, and then my older brother. And so there's this, there's this figure that is 
you know, moving around his track, as I get closer, I realize it's Uncle Ted. And I'm trying to process what's going on. And as I do that, you know, I, I look to my stepfather and my mom, and I'm like, what is this? And they explain Uncle Ted has been at this for six days, and he staged his own six-day race, and he's been going around this one-eighth-mile track for six days trying to see how many miles he could accumulate. There was a tent on the infield and a little you know, a pull-out card table with some food and water and stuff. And uh, he would, you know, run around this track. At this point, he was like, his run was like a slow walk. And uh, I got to Uncle Ted, and I remember, he usually stands over six foot tall. I'm about 5'8". He was about as tall as I was at that point. And he could barely talk. He was wheezing. And uh, I remember I was just awestruck. And my stepfather, my mom, and my brother, they just kind of stood there and watched, like, this guy is insane. And I was, I was so in. And I got on the track, I remember, and I, you know, I tried to talk to him. He couldn't even talk. He was wheezing, like, <gasps> Yeah. And, um, you know, I just went around and around with him. And I, it, it was, it was uh, beyond any feeling I had ever had in my life. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. And it was like at that moment, I knew that anything was possible because Uncle Ted was doing this. How old was Uncle Ted at this time? Oh, yeah, he was in his mid-50s probably. Oh, okay. And, right. uh, you know, to give you a little bit of additional background, Uncle Ted, he's done a bunch of six-mile races. Uh, he's carried the Olympic torch. He's in the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, he ran across Siberia. Uh, he's the first person to swim across the Bering Strait from Russia to Alaska, swam around Manhattan, uh, swam halfway around Hong Kong Island, and then something happened. He you know, was biking across America, crashed his bike on a tire. You know, semis sometimes blow out their tire in the middle of the night and crashed into that, and that was into that. I mean, he's just done so many different, a DECA Ironman triathlon, 10 Ironman triathlons back to back to back. He was the first person ever to complete the Grand Slam of Ironman which in one year is a double Ironman, a triple Ironman, quadruple Ironman, and a quintuple Ironman. You're supposed to do that in one year. He did it in six months and had a spinal surgery within that time period. I mean, the, the guy was just incredible. People that know him have told me stories like Marshall Ulrich, who is right. an amazing man. And um, he was telling me stories about, you know, when Marsh was going on his first eco challenge and Uncle Ted was possibly going to be a a person and they were working out together and you know he had tremendous respect for my uncle ted and uh you know it was just uh it was amazing to be actually related to this man well you weren't related in blood with with him but uh somehow there must have been some sort of something that got into your system from uncle ted because you took that track eventually and um, started doing some phenomenal Phenom phenomenal things. After that, uh, you got through high school and then you ended up in college uh, and was able to graduate and get yourself a degree and you became a lawyer. But there was one part in your book that I, I thought was interesting and I was kind of concerned when I was listening uh, to this section when your college buddies played that prank on you. <laughs> I, I didn't know where that was going, if that was going to end up good or if it was going to end up uh, bad, because I know you were having, you yeah. know, you were struggling with the eye disease and, yeah. and you kept saying in there that, well, it's one again, the eye disease is one again. Yeah. But it turned out okay, even though it was kind of a funky little, yeah. 
Dang, tell me. So <laughs> I, I have a college roommates. You know, the, thank God for college roommates, right? Yeah. Uh, I had these three guys and uh, we lived together a uh, couple of years and uh, they knew about my eye disease. I wouldn't tell anybody about it, but they knew about it because they needed to know about it. I mean, I couldn't hide it from them because we lived together. And one of the symptoms of my eye disease is severe night blindness. So I kind of liken that to, I know regularly sighted people can see like in the nighttime, but it's still dark. But imagine putting on like a super dark pair of sunglasses and that's probably closer to what I see. Plus I see through like this little tunnel. And um, so what my college roommates had done this particular night, it was nighttime and I had come back home after the library, figured out how to get back home and uh, I, you know, tried to get in the house, but the outside light was turned off. And usually the guys leave the light on for me so I can get in the house and, you know, get my key into the, into the little keyhole. And uh, the light didn't work. So I walk in the house and I'm like, okay, get in, flip on the light switch, no lights work. I'm like, darn it, you know, maybe a transformer went out in the neighborhood, but um, I could tell that the neighbor's lights were on. And then I'm like, trying to you know navigate my way to my room. I just figure out the wait until the transformer gets fixed. And um, I bump into something, like I'm tripping on things. I'm like, oh no, am I in the wrong house? And all I, you know, a scene unfolds. I'm like, oh no, you know, owner comes out, gun. You know, I'm like, don't shoot. But I remember that I had my key. It was actually my house. And then I start hearing, you know, I'm still fumbling around and I hear giggling. I'm like, what is going on? And then uh, there's a bright, uh, flashlight, kind of like police are coming at you, you know, and the, yeah. and the giggling turns into like hysterical laughter. And then all of a sudden the lights turn on and it's my college buddies. And they thought it would be funny to play a prank to basically unscrew the light bulb. So no lights would come on, then rearrange the furniture and, uh, you know, have me trip. And that night turned out to be a really good night for me. And that was an example of, uh, you know, my eye disease had owned me for a lot of my life, uh, as I talk about in the book. And you know, I've had disappointment after disappointment. And there's a lot of negativity you can feed into that. But there's, it can also be the basis for a lot of laughter and fun. And this was an example of one of those situations where, you know, you have an issue going on. It doesn't define you. It's something that we all laughed at in my buddies weren't laughing at me. I mean, you know, at this point in time, these guys are like my brothers and this is 30 years later. Right. And they helped me to have a sense of humor with something that was going on in my life. And I think that story was important to me to share because some people actually, they, they read that story, they're like, oh, that was so cruel. But I tried, you know, it's like anything in life, it depends on your perspective. You could look at it as being cruel, but that's what you're bringing to the situation. And I could look at it as being cruel too. But uh, it was actually a really good thing because it taught me that even when I'm totally scared, I'm totally alone, I'm totally terrified, I can still laugh at this thing. And uh, sometimes I've had to reach back to that particular situation to help me get through a moment. And yeah, I'm a grown man now. I am so glad that that turned out good because I'm, I'm just cringing as I'm <laughs> listening to it. I'm going, please let this turn out good. Don't let it be I'll bad. Give, I'll give everybody their names, <laughs> addresses. You can all write them letters. All, all of that. So I'm guessing right around 1993. I, I hope my math is correct, but I think 1993 in that area, 
you decided to do your first marathon was which was the Denver International Marathon. Yes, sir. So tell me about that. How did that all come about? Yeah, I had uh, we have a local news mag in Denver called Westward. Right. And I was thumbing through that because every week they have cool stuff that's going on in Denver, still exists today, actually. And I opened up the mag and on one side I saw Denver International Marathon and it was there. I was like, I'm doing it. You know, Uncle Ted came to my mind. I signed up and that was it. I didn't know how to train. Uncle Ted was off on some adventure, so I couldn't pick his brain. And uh, I just started running. I was in law school at the time and I would go to school, I would study, and then I would run. And I didn't know how much to run or what to run. So I'd run, you know, four or five times during the week for a few miles. And uh, then I didn't understand about long runs either, but, and I'd never ran 26.2 miles, but I thought, I was like, maybe I should, you know, try to do this and, and um, do a long run, quote, long run. I was going to law school in Boulder. Uh, I'm from Denver. That's about, depends on where you go into Denver, but it could be 20 to 30 miles. And I talked to my mom one week and I was like, would you be willing to like drop me off in Boulder and then drive back down to Denver? I'll run back down to your house or I'll run in Denver and you'll pick me up. I'll go to a payphone and call you up. And uh, that was my long run. And I did that and I ran along the highway, which you're not supposed to run along now. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and I didn't have... I didn't take any water. I didn't take any food. I took a quarter so I could run to a payphone if I really got in trouble. And uh, that was my long run and that was my marathon training. And uh, I ended up actually running the Denver International Marathon when it, when it came. And uh, I think I finished just under 315. And uh, I didn't know if that was good or bad, but I had uh, done something that I had thought I never could do. That's, an, that's a very respectable time. I would take a 315. Anytime. My PR is 328. So wow. that's amazing. Um, and so you became a lawyer and ended up getting married to a woman. And then you ended up uh, moving to Puerto Rico. That's right. Was this with General Electric that you went down there to work for in a corporate position? Yes. So I had, uh, I had went to law school, became a lawyer for a number of years and I realized that I had dreams and aspirations bigger than just you know the courtroom, and uh, I wanted to go in business. And I found a GE company that was headquartered in Colorado. Knocked on their door until they hired me. Got rejected a bunch of times, but eventually they hired me and started as an attorney. And after six months there, I switched into a corporate position, inactivated my legal license. I never looked back and just went into a business career. And that brought me a 10-year career at GE. Six of those years were in Puerto Rico, um, leading GE Capital down there. And uh, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, you, you've lived in an island, on an island oh, yeah. for I a number of years. on an island, yeah. yeah and yeah. I was uh, down in Puerto Rico, and it was absolutely spectacular, wonderful. Oh, I, I was <laughs> there one time um, on a cruise through uh, the Caribbean, and had one stop and loved San Juan. Mm. And I always wanted to go back there. And it was really sad that they had all that issue with the hurricane yeah. and you know how we responded uh, or our government responded, but that's, that's a whole different thing. But before you went to GE, you were doing um, attorney lawyer work, which was litigation for business. That's right. Was, and you hated it. Yeah. Was a, well, it was the litigation aspect that I didn't like. Like I just, 
litigation, you're in a trial, in a lawsuit, and it's, quote, civilized warfare, if you will. And I just didn't like being in conflict like that. I mean, you're constantly in conflict. Um, there's another way, there's other areas to practice law in, and one of those was business. And that's like where you're building something. So you're negotiating a contract, you're trying to you know, reach a compromise that's a win-win situation, and you're building something instead of tearing something apart. Right. And that's what I was trying to gravitate towards. And once I'd gotten to General Electric, I realized that this existed. I thought, I don't want to be the guy writing the contract. I want to be the guy negotiating the contract. Then I want to be the guy who's you know, creating the business model that's making humanity better and the lawyers can take care of the legal stuff. Right, exactly. Now, when you were, and I get where you were going with this in the book, when you, you had to excel and you put a lot of pressure on yourself to excel in your corporate position because of your eye disease, which you did not want a lot of people to know about. And so you had to do a lot of hiding of it and then try to do things so people wouldn't realize what you were internally going through. Yeah, I think, I think this is an important conversation. This is a conversation about shame. And I think a lot of people have shame. So let's talk about my personal story and then I'll you know, share some thoughts on that. Um, my eye disease, if somebody encounters me, they will not realize or think that I have any type of visual impairment because I function as if I can see. And a lot of people with retinitis pigmentosa, it's the same perception because you've had eyesight one point in time and you know that you're supposed to attend to a person. So you're supposed to look directly at their face, even if you can't see what their face is. If they move their head, then you move your head too. So you don't look weird. So I faked it. And as I got into my corporate careers or my work or my professional life, what I realized was, you know, if these guys realize I can't see the spreadsheet with all these numbers, what are they going to think? Or is that going to, you know, are they going to think I can't do the job or like I shouldn't, I should get passed over for promotion or, you know, I just, it was all this fear and it was crippling fear. And that fear came from shame for me. And um, that, that had grips on me until really just four years ago. And I hit it, you know, and I was shameful of this eye disease. And I would go out of my way to try to pretend like I could see so others wouldn't know and so that they didn't have to feel weird. What, what was the, the most ironic thing about this was, you know, I mentioned severe night blindness. So in Puerto Rico, I was leading the organization there and I would have dinners with dignitaries and you know, government officials trying to get tax breaks, create jobs, do that type of thing. And we take them out to dinner and you know, it's the fancier dinner you have, nice steakhouse, the darker it is. So I, I can't see and I'd always yeah. have my assistant call, get me the most lit table. I'd go scout the restaurant in advance so I could learn the layout beforehand so I wouldn't be bumping into things, have more candles at my area. And what was crazy, but I'd meet all these people, we'd have conversation, I would talk, you know, I, I just, I was constantly faking. And then, you know, it's a great dinner. And then the next day you're at the, the mall and somebody says, hey, Jason from across the way. And yeah, I just sat across the table from this person. They told me their whole story. I told them my whole story. I had no clue who it was because I couldn't see that it was that person. And they didn't know that I couldn't see and it just really turned into some extremely awkward situations. The other thing that I feel really bad about was, um, you know, I had a 
there was a big call center operation as part of this. So there's a lot of people sitting there taking calls and I would always walk the floor, say hi to people. Um, and I like to be that type of a leader who's personal and open door, accessible, that type of thing. And I would, you know, talk with people and you know, we'd share stories. I'd know their name. I know what their story was, but I wouldn't tell them that I couldn't see their face or recognize their face. And in different areas, Puerto Rico is a small island. You know, I may see them or what have you from a distance, but I'd really have to be one foot away from their face to be able to recognize certain features. And then I have to scan their whole face to be able to understand their features. Oh, that's who you are, to, to see them visually. And that never happens. So I would have incident after incident where people would think I was really rude or ignoring them. Right. And um, when in fact, I just had no clue who they were. Like I couldn't see them. And, uh, you know, I know that I hurt a lot of people's feelings by not divulging that I couldn't see. And that was the ironic situation about it. Um, you know, in, as I've sat with that guilt, you know, I talk about it now freely. And I, uh, so I hope, you know, people understand. But the big thing that I learned in that journey was shame. And for some reason, <laughs> I was shameful for who I was. In this eye disease, I didn't ask for this eye disease, right? But I have it. But I had shame, and the thing that I've learned, and the lesson that I've learned, is that you can eradicate shame with one letter, which is changing that M to an R, and shame becomes share. If you will share what your issue is with other people, you will be authentic and vulnerable. You are going to be accepted, and that lesson I only learned four years ago. And since I've taken that step, you know, I've went from being a shameful person about this to being a person now who talks about it very openly, asks for help, can accept help, and I'm 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 such a better person. It sounds like it freed you. Yeah. It took a big burden off your shoulder and it just freed you to the point where you feel like a feather. I came I came out of the closet. <laughs> You know, yeah. For, with my issue, yeah. I came out of the closet, and we all we all are hiding in our closet with some things. Exactly. Come out of the closet. Yeah. So that was the lesson I learned. And you're the last person that I would ever think, you know, knowing you just as short as I've known you and reading your book, you would never ever ignore anybody. If they said hi to you, you'd be the first person to shake their hand and say, "Hey, it's great to see you." Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I can understand how some people would feel, and but but that's because of your your issue, and and I get it. And I'm glad you you uh, shared that. I'm shaking telling that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you told it because it, I'm I know that there's going to be somebody out there that's going to appreciate hearing that, and it, it might change their life. Um, you had another curveball thrown at you. Um, you had um, your son Sage. Yeah. He was diagnosed with autism. Yeah. Yeah. When we were, when we moved to Puerto Rico, uh, Sage was two years old and uh, actually two and a half. And I think in the, like about the fourth month, it was within the first year of being down there, Sage went through battery tests. Uh, Kathy, my ex-wife, Sage's mom, knew something was off and we went to doctor after doctor after doctor and ended up with the diagnosis, actually flew back here to Colorado Children's Hospital and Sage was diagnosed with autism. And it was uncanny how the diagnosis 
mirrored my diagnosis with my eye disease. Because when the doctor diagnosed Sage with autism, he told us, well, Sage will probably have an IQ of 50. He'll probably never live alone. And um, the message was really like, kind of like just give up, throw in the towel, and this is your situation. And that was the, the diagnosis I had when I got my eye disease, which was you're going blind, you'll be blind by the time you're 30, forget about any dream, being a lawyer or a doctor, and you know, this is it. So by my life, I realized that was a load of malarkey. And, uh, you know, Sage is going to live a tremendous life. And what's interesting is Sage is 18 uh, right now. He's a senior at high school. And I just left, you know, this morning, you know, tremendous person, probably the nicest person you'll ever meet, doesn't have a mean bone in his body, uh, in National Honor Society. Uh, Just a great kid. You know, we go around, people know him and and uh, Sage has struggles like all of us, right? But uh, it it was not the doom and gloom diagnosis that was given, and it was you know th- there were difficult times in Sage's journey. And Sage actually is my inspiration a lot of days when I get down because with Sage's autism, I mean things throw him off, sounds throw him off. Um, the thing that triggers Sage the most is when people are disrespectful to one another, and it's. It's crazy. Like he goes to school, a student's disrespectful to a teacher, and that will just be, you know, that's not how it's supposed to be. And Sage will cry. It's very difficult. And uh, Sage is a big kid too, you know, like 6'1", 230. Yeah. So for Sage to cry is a different type of thing. But um, he goes out every day. He's going to encounter situations that's going to trigger his autism. He's going to have to take a break, regroup, cope and then continue on. And there are times too, and it breaks my heart when Sage and I are together and he just cries and he's like, I hate having autism. I hate this. Yeah. And uh, I just, I remember back to my days of when I was in my room, you know, crying saying, I hate this. But at the end of the day, you know, it's like uh, the lesson I learned is my, you know, what I thought was my curse ended up being my blessing. Right. And um, Sage is a, you know, God makes no mistakes. Sage is exactly as he's supposed to be. And he brings so much joy to so many people's lives. Um, he's just an amazing, amazing young man. I'm glad he's doing well and, and glad that he's turning into a, a fine young man. That's, uh, yeah. you know, I know it was a tough situation. And especially when um, you were ready to have another child, that that thought of autism came in and um, put it bluntly, your relationship was falling apart. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I think having any type of special needs within a family, they say the divorce rate is like 85% or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Just because there's an additional level of stress. And I don't blame um, my failed marriage on that. I think it's, you know, both parents' responsibility. Right. Day, so it's, it falls on both of us. But, uh, yeah, we did not make it through. And after... Uh, my assignment in Puerto Rico was done. We moved back to Colorado. Right. And that was um, in 2009. And we went through a divorce. Uh, we had three kids at the time. Right, exactly. Three kids now. Three kids now. Now, before before you left Puerto Rico, you had a 
gigantic gap between the Denver International Marathon <laughs> and the next one, 12 or 14 years or something like that. Because, you know, it's really amazing. And when people see your resume and all the accomplishments, it really hasn't been that long because we're looking at 2007 when you did the Las Vegas Marathon. And that's uh, that's only 12 years that you've really accomplished a lot of things that you're doing. But tell me about what got you back into running again. Yeah, Sage. My son got me back into running. So we're in Puerto Rico, and Sage had gotten to the point where he was ready to go to school, and uh, like to kindergarten. And there was no school for kiddos with autism in Puerto Rico. So we started one, uh, Kathy and I and Sage's occupational therapist and speech therapist and off we went and um the you know we, we had to figure out a building figure out the curriculum figure out the correct type of autism treatment that we want to do the educational standards you know everything and i was the numbers guy you know helped them figure out the plan because i had a business and then i thought well i need to do more so let me try to fundraise and i thought <clears throat> if i run a marathon I'm sure my college buddies <laughs> who had played pranks right, on me would donate. Right. And, uh, and I was a mess at the time, actually, physically. I have a picture in my book. as 35 years old, around roughly. And, uh, and I had been in Puerto Rico. I was probably about another 25, 30 pounds. Oh, I, I saw right that now. picture. You were. You, <laughs> looked, you didn't look, look like the specimen of health that you do today. I was living the life. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was drinking a lot of rum and coke, smoking cigars, eating fried foods, you know, heavy foods. And I was, I was stressed out too. I mean, I was working a lot of hours. I had a lot of responsibility um, leading the group that I was leading down there. And uh, I started marathon training and, you know, true to their form, my college buddies, uh, they laughed when I asked them to vault to, to pledge to support this school. If I'd run a marathon, they were laughing like, oh yeah, I'll pledge for sure. And, uh, that actually got me into the, into the Las Vegas marathon. And that, that one didn't turn out so well. I did, I was able to finish, but it was pretty ugly, uh, at the end, but that started me going to getting to where I am today. Well, yeah, you got beat up pretty bad. At least you felt that you got beat up pretty bad. You It took a while to recover from that. I looked up your time in that, and you did a 3.30.30. 30. That's not a bad time. Even for <laughs> even for having a pitiful, you know, thinking that you did a pitiful race, that's a great time. So when you came back to Colorado and you went through your divorce and you turned 40, you did a resolution run. Your own personal resolution, 40 miles turning 40. Yeah, yeah. So when I came back to Colorado, um, <clears throat> I was going through this divorce and I wasn't working. It's the first time in my life I'd been unemployed. And uh, I was lost. Uh, and I was lost because suddenly, half the time, my children were not with me. And I was in this state where, you know, I had a family and all of a sudden it was gone. And like the reality of that and going through a divorce uh, was just, it was crushing, just crushing. I'm sure I was depressed. And uh, I thought I, you know, I gotta do something. And I had continued to uh, increase in my endurance sports and I went through triathlon. I had done Ironman triathlons. I had ran Boston by that time. And I got back to Colorado and somehow some, or actually the book Born to Run came out. Yeah. And there's a story in there about Leadville and Uncle Ted, 
I remember it had run Leadville. Yeah. Yeah. One of the very first runnings, uh, he was one of those crazy people out there <laughs> running right. it. And I thought, Uncle Ted. I was like, let me follow Uncle Ted. So I looked up Leadville as registering for their, uh, for the 100 miler. I'd never ran more than a marathon. And then I saw this thing called an epic challenge. I was like, ah, okay, yeah, I'm in. And the epic challenge was Lead Man. Right. And Lead Man ends up being not just the 100-mile trail race, but it's also the 100-mile mountain bike ride, which is the week before, a 10K run, a 50-mile mountain bike ride or run, and then the Leadville Marathon. You do all that within a 10-week time period. And if you could do all those within the cutoffs, then you're, quote, Lead Man. Right. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, paid the money, signed up, and off I went running. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, maybe I should probably... Uh, see if I can run more than 26 miles. As that was all jingling around my head, it was January 1st, I remember, and uh, this was as I was going through my divorce and my kids were going up to Greeley to visit my ex's side of the family. And I was going to be alone on New Year's Day. And the holidays, for me, even to this day, are very depressing when I don't have my kids. And all I could think was, you know, I should just run the whole day. And I was going to turn 40 that year. And I thought, I'm going to go out and do 40 miles. And I don't know how this is going to happen or what's going to happen. But I set my GPS watch. I just started you know, running around Denver. And I, I wrote a note to my kids. And it was really heartfelt um, with a lot of emotion. And uh, off I went. And I actually ended up doing 40 miles. And it was ugly at the end. But <laughs> I got yeah, 40 but you miles got, done. You got it, yeah. yeah. The lead man, you did not make lead man that year. Now. And as a matter of fact, during the bike ride, you had a nice little story in there that you, there was a woman that was crying and yeah. uh, you, you helped her, actually you both helped each other to, to get through the, the bike portion of it. And you already knew at that time that lead man wasn't going to happen for you, you know, finishing the, yeah. but that was a really wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on the hundred mile mountain bike, it's a 50 mile out and back. And at the 50 mile turnaround, right before from mile 40 to 50, you do this, you know, huge climb up Columbine, up to Columbine Mine, which is like 13,000 feet elevation, come from 9,000 feet to 13,000 feet. And at the very top, there's some pretty technical, slippery, scree section where a lot of people end up. I mean, it's just, it's scary. You know, going up, a lot of people are hiking their bikes, but coming back down, well-accomplished mountain bike will just bomb down it. Uh, and as I had hit the 50-mile turnaround, in my head I had thought, you know, there's no way I'm going to make it and cut off. I was there at six hours, six and a half hours. The cutoff time for the Leadville 100 bike is 12 hours. So I thought six and a half hours to get back, five and a half to get back. I got to make up that much time, no way. Now what I know, I actually could have made it, I believe. But I threw in the towel, and I was trying to make my way down Columbine Mine. As I came up, I couldn't, I could tell there's other riders, but I heard this crying there was a lady ahead of me and she was obviously having a lot of trouble. She was going slow, just like I needed. Uh, but she was crying. I was like, what's going on? And she's like, I, I can't do this. And people are yelling at me, screaming, screaming. And I told her, I was like, just stay right there. I'm going to block for you. I will be right behind you. Go as slow as you need. And nobody will hit you. We'll get through this area. So, you know, I mean, she was crying the whole time. And sometimes if it's even more crying. She never went down. I never went down. And it took us probably about a good 15 minutes to get through that section. 
But once we got through that section, you know, she was super thankful. Yeah. You know, it was a safer place. And it actually worked for me. It was a blessing for me because yeah. that was a pace that I needed. And I had somebody right there, a guide. I ne never used guides before. I didn't even know what existed. It wasn't yeah. until like another seven, eight years I began using guides. It ended up being actually a really uh, wonderful thing. And kind of interesting, as I'm sitting here telling you that story, 10 years later, I tried Leadman again. I was actually able to finish just last year. Congratulations. But as I was doing the mountain bike ride, I had almost the exact same situation and a woman blocked for me while I was going down that section. Wow. And I had a guide who I was following. I, we were on solo bikes and it wasn't a tandem ride, but I had a lady who pulled up behind me and she did the exact same thing for me as I went through that section. And uh, wow, karma, huh? I, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Running, running is a magical sport, I, you know, and this was mountain biking, but any type of that athletics is just amazing sure. um, on, on some of the stuff that happens out there. Congratulations on lead, man. I know that when you did the run, you twisted your ankle. That was in 2010, but you, you were just going to try to, you know, get through all the races anyways at, at Leadville. And I think we were talking beforehand that I was actually out there that year. <sighs> And I was uh, going to pace David Manty, who heads up Runner's Edge of the Rockies in the Bear Chase series. By the way, congratulations on your fourth place finish in the 100K this year. Thanks. It's kind of amazing. I was there <laughs> the same year that you did it. Um, a story, and, and we're, gonna, we're getting really close now to, uh, to the real story, and that's you running across the United States, which I'm really excited about. There is a story when you went for a run up at Pikes Peak and you headed up there, beautiful day, but we know how Colorado is and a storm came in. What you wrote in your book, that was scary. Yeah. Uh, if, if you've been up there, I think you'll understand the story. And Pikes Peak is a 14,000 foot peak. And uh, I, I remember when I, after that had happened, I tried to, because I was shaken, um, I guess I should tell the story. Uh, I had went up to run Pikes Peak, and uh, it's 13 miles up, and you start at 6,000 feet. It tops out at a little over 14,000 feet. And the deal with 14ers in Colorado, usually you want to hit the summit by noon and then turn around and start on your way back down. And the reason for that is because of weather, because uh, storms come over the top of mountains, and there's lightning and hail and all kinds of stuff. And this was a little late in the season that I was doing it. And after I had tagged the top, a storm came over Pikes Peak and I was trying to get back down. And there's about a three mile section from the summit back down to treeline and a blizzard came. And I'd never been in a situation like that before. And I had you know, my little running pack, some shorts and you know, a, a tech tee because it was a nice day. And uh, it just turned into a whiteout blizzard. Uh, and I was, a, at that point, I was like one mile down. So I, I think I'd gotten close to just, a, just above 13,000 feet. And it was whiteout snow. I couldn't discern the trail. And all I kept thinking is either I have to go back up because there's a gift shop up there and I could take cover, but I didn't know if I could figure the trail up or I keep going down because if I keep going down, eventually I'm gonna hit the town. And what I thought is if I could get to tree line, I would have some cover and I, you know, the, the trail would not be as covered. So I'd be able to discern a trail. I just needed to get out of this exposed area. And what ended up happening was I, um, I couldn't tell the trail. 
and there's huge drop-offs. There's a one place where there's actually a 1,500 foot drop. So I mean, you could die if you go off the wrong place. And you know, I was almost you know just inching forward, and uh, I was getting colder, and I was freaking out. Yeah, three kids, and all I was you know, I mean, weird stuff starts to go through your head. I didn't start thinking about dying, but I knew that was like in the far off distance. Yeah. And I was like, I just got to get out of this. And I started screaming. Because I thought maybe by chance there's another there's other people out here, and uh, sure enough, there was an angel, what I call an angel out there, and it was some guy from Chicago who'd been out. He was just hiking up, and I was just screaming, and I was paralyzed. And uh, he, you know, he comes up to me. This takes like about an hour for him to get to me, and because I can't move, I'm going off trail. I'm just like I just got to stay here. And uh, when he gets to me. He helps, you know, I explain my situation. I don't see, can you see, can you tell the trail? He's like, yes, I can. And I, you know, I tell this guy, I was like, you're from Chicago. You need to turn and get back down the mountain. And he ends up taking me down to Treeline, those additional two miles. I don't know how long it took. You yeah. know, I'm sure it took for an hour. Kind of interesting. Actually, uh, I just reached out to the guy a couple weeks ago. And because I have him in my contacts and I was like, I was thinking about him. I was like, I don't know if you remember me, but are you, do you live in Chicago? And did you ever encounter a guy on Pike's Peak during a snowstorm? And if you did, it was me. And he wrote back, he's like, yeah, I'm surprised you remember that guy. What a great. I was like, you know something? I wrote about you in my book and I want to send you a copy of it. Uh-huh. And I can never thank you enough. And this guy, you know, literally was an angel placed there because uh, he saved me. You know, I, I don't know if that would have died or whatever, but it would have been ugly. It would have, uh, it would have been ugly. I can't imagine what you what was going through your mind at that time. Um, you know, I've been stuck out there in snowstorms here in Colorado running, but not to that degree. Not not where you were at in Pikes Peak. Yeah, and that you know that's it's a, it was an interesting situation because I never you know like I have sight, I have eyesight, and that literally was like just put the blindfold on. And instead of being a black blindfold, it was a white blindfold. All that my eyes could perceive was white. Mm-hmm. And it was like going blind right there. And I was like, oh my God, how does this happen? It was crazy because I froze. I yeah. froze. You made it and you're still with us so good. <laughs> I think I mixed up something here. I think I, I related Pike's Peak uh, to November 12th of 2011, but that wasn't, that wasn't it. Yeah, there was, there something, was else a, something else on November 12th, 2011 that had something to do with an inflatable Frosty. <laughs> and this was, this was good. You're a man of faith. And yeah. I, I think this is, a, this is worth talking about. Yeah. It, this this actually happened probably. Uh, you're sit we're, we're sitting in my living room right now, and five feet from where your back is is where it happened right out. Oh wow! Wall. Wow! So my neighbor, uh, I like to decorate my house for Christmas, and I always have inflatables up, and all the neighborhood kids love them. So my neighbor had had this twelve foot frosty, and he was too embarrassed to put it up by his house, and his wife wouldn't let him because it attracts too much attention. So I'm the neighborhood goof. He's like, "Hey, Jason, you want the frosty?" I was like, "Sure." So I take it, inflate it, you know, there's a Santa or whatever. And, and uh, crazy thing, um, because from a faith journey perspective, I was raised Catholic and um, I went through, got my sacraments, but I really didn't understand what I was doing. I was going, felt like I was going through the motions, went to college. You know, I got into more of a spiritual mindset, I guess, philosophical, you know, do good for the sake of doing good. But 
what happened uh, in 2011 here was, uh, you know, shook me to my core. And that's frankly when uh, I found Jesus and I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I gave my life to him. And I'm not here to proselytize or anything like that. But, you know, November 12th, 2011 at 3 a.m. outside of my house with a, an inflatable, I came to Christ and it's a crazy story. And I'm a lawyer sitting here. And I think if I heard yeah. somebody else tell the story, I'd kind of be thinking like, hey, kind of off your rocker, but uh, I know what I experienced. And uh, I made a decision that day that has uh, really changed my life. And it's, it's helped me get through many, many things and inspired me. It goes a little bit more in depth in your book. And I suggest people read that part of it because it is, it did seem to be, in my opinion, a nice turning point for you. Uh, and shortly after that, or maybe right at that time too, you started doing some volunteer work at a homeless shelter and, uh, it seemed like Friday pancake breakfast was like a real special time for you. Yeah. The, the same neighbor, Gary, that gave me the inflatable, uh, turned me on to this homeless shelter and there are a bunch of retirees that ended up going down there and they sponsor a pancake breakfast for homeless population in Denver every Friday. And, uh, you know, this was at the time I was going through my divorce, I discovered this and I was like, yeah, I got time on my hands. Let me go down on Friday and help out. So the place is called Christ Body Ministries, a bunch of retirees. And these guys, it's so funny because the guys who are at this Christ Body Ministry, you know, this Christian homeless shelter place, they're all Buddhists. <laughs> so there's a bunch uh, of no, Buddhists yeah. sponsored a, a breakfast. And it, yeah, so yeah. It, it doesn't matter. You know, we're just trying to do good. Right. And uh, these guys have like about 20 years on me. And it was just wonderful. You know, you go down, you cook pancakes, sausage, you serve people, and then you clean up after yourselves. You go have coffee. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing. Actually, right now, today, if you and I weren't speaking right here, right now, You'd that's be where I'd be. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what, what I learned through that experience too is, you know, it's like what Martin Luther King said, you know, life of service is a life of meaning. And when we serve another person is when we are at our best. And when I think back even back to my corporate career, you know, I think about what we did, what I was doing like a GE. I'm not so sure that the actual service or product that I was delivering was, you know, changing the world, if you will. Sorry, GE, they're not my employer anymore. Yeah. But the way that I served my team, the people that, we're making all of this happen, the jobs that we are creating in Puerto Rico, the nation or the, the, the island economy, the service that you do that your work does for other people is what makes this all worthwhile. And I think that's why that particular, you know, th this, this homeless shelter and serving became so near and dear to my heart because it was a way to truly serve people who needed to be served. And frankly, who a lot of people wouldn't serve. I mean, the homeless population, that's, it's hard to be homeless. A lot of times people don't even acknowledge a homeless person, won't even look at them. You walk right. up to a store and people will purposely look away, probably because they feel uncomfortable. But, you know, a person's a human being. And frankly, a lot of us are probably about two months away from being homeless. You know, there's oh, exactly. a lot of paycheck to paycheck. Right. And, you know, my mom always says, but for the grace of God, there go we. And, uh, you know, just serving the homeless is huge in my family. And my mom actually is the one who modeled that behavior. She uh, volunteered at homeless shelters, God, beginning probably like 25 years ago. 
Yeah. Out in Maui, there's a there's a huge homeless issue. And I live in a, a little town called Kihei. Mm. Um, and it's on the south side of Maui. And there's a, a Catholic church. It's called St. Teresa's. And they have a program called Halle Cow Cow. And they've been serving the homeless and the homebound for several years. And uh, they do amazing things. And every every evening there's a hot meal for the homeless over there. And it's so nice to see. And actually, a friend, Dr. Mary Trotto, she's big in the running community in, in Maui. And she put on a run called Stomp Out Hunger. Mm-hmm. And this was actually last weekend that she did it. And, um, and then all the ladies that cook at Halle Cow Cow for the homeless, they they put on this big spread for the runners afterwards and all the money goes to support that because you got to have a lot of community to yeah. to uh, keep a program like that going. So I, I that's I, tremendous. It's great admiration to you for doing that. I, I just uh, I think it's really good to give back. One thing it was about one of my favorite races, which is Georgetown, Idaho Springs. You were you had a girlfriend at the time and she ran the race, didn't have a good race. And yeah. you went up there to pick her up and. Um, something happened that kind of shook you to your core. Yeah, you've done your homework. <laughs> I, I, you know this story. Uh, yep. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so this is another one, like I'm starting to shake right now as I'm starting to tell you this story. Uh, I was driving at the time, and my driving license has always been restricted to daylight only. When I had my license, I always had to go in and get a, an eye doctor to sign a form and approve that I could actually drive, and then I'd have to take a driving test um, because I couldn't pass the actual eye test. So they had to test and see if I could drive. And I was getting to the point where I was questioning my ability to drive, but you know, how else can I get to work? How else can I live life except if, you know, if I drive? So I was going to pick up uh, my girlfriend at the time, and we were supposed to meet in Idaho Springs, which is a little small mountain town. And it's a pretty big race that ends in this small mountain town. The, the streets are small. You know, there's a lot of people along the side streets, crossing streets, what have you. So I had picked her up, found her, and we were going to go deeper into the mountains to go spend a, a weekend together. And uh, as we were going through town, I was trying to get out of town. I had come up to this stop sign, and I was driving. She was in the passenger seat, and I had checked, you know, both ways. It was four-way stop. And uh, so I started proceeding through the stop sign, and right when I started proceeding through, all of a sudden, I saw this like flash in front of me, and I slammed on the brakes, and I didn't know what it was. Well, it turns out it was a family of four, a mother, father, and two children, and they went darting across in front of my car, and they got to the other side of the street, and they're laughing, and uh, I had slammed on the brakes, so I didn't, nobody got hurt, but I was uh, shaken, and the reason why is that I had looked right where they should have come from, and I did not, there was nobody there. And uh, with my eyesight, I have a peripheral, peripheral eyesight. Sorry, I'm like shaken. I can't even like yeah. get through the story. Um, but I, I like lose my peripheral eyesight. So like right now I look through a tunnel, and it's kind of like looking through a toilet paper roll carton. So if I look, one in one area, but I don't move just far enough, I won't perceive that a person's there. All I could think was I scanned and looked at that stop sign, but I may not have scanned like an extra centimeter enough to be able to perceive these people. And I could have ran them over if I would have 
put on the gas. I mean, I just took my foot off the brakes so the car was barely inching forward and I was able to slam on the brakes. But if I was in a hurry and I you know, went off the brake onto the gas, I would have ran people over and that was it. Um, you know, I was uh, like, this, this eyesight thing actually was real. Uh, it was going to change my life in a significant way. And uh, that was the beginning of a, of a, of a very terrible time right. uh, in my life. And uh, yeah, things, things got bad from there. Right. I, I can tell uh, when I read that part in the book and then you had to give up, you, you decided you weren't going to drive anymore and that was tough to talk to your children about. And, um, but thank, thank God that nothing, yeah. nothing bad happened in that situation. But yeah. uh, you realized it. So let's get to something good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think there is an important, there's an important conversation there though, too. And you know, I'm glad that you are who you are because I can have this conversation on this. Um, when I said it led to a bad time, it, you know, that was the beginning of a spiral into a severe depressive episode for me. <clears throat> and I don't know if that's a psychological term or whatever, but I was bottomed out. You know, I hit rock bottom. I stopped driving. Uh, my last job I had resigned from or gotten fired from. Um, I had applied for Social Security disability income, and I got a letter from the federal government saying I was permanently and totally disabled. And uh, I, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like I said, I wasn't driving. How do you get three kids to three different schools or to birthday parties? Or how do you go to the store? Or how, you know, I mean, how does anything work? And my kids are confused. I'm confused, and I ended up, you know, depressed and having very, very bad thoughts, very dark thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know if I wanted to go on. It's very hard to say that. And I have these three kids and those thoughts are going through my head. Uh, I did go and find professional counseling and I went to a psychologist for a year and a half to help try to work through that. But the reason I say, I think this is an important piece of the story because frankly, I was clinically depressed. Uh, and that's something actually that I still work with and struggle with to this day. Um, but that's an important conversation I think that we all need to have because, uh, you know, mental health is something, you know, I'm all about physical health. And I was raised right. in an environment where, you know, mental health, ah, just, you know, toughen it up or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm one of the toughest people mentally that I know or that you will meet. I can go through I can go through a lot. Yeah. But, you know, there are different things in our life that affect us, you know, not athletically related, that can trigger that. And uh, I think anxiety and depression is prevalent along a lot in a lot of areas, a lot of homes. It's not something, it's a conversation needs to be had, especially among men too. Um, I do a lot of speaking now, but when I go out and I talk and I tell my story, I do talk about this and I, you know, usually I end up in tears and it's very hard to talk through because I have a lot of those feelings again and I still struggle with it. But it's also a conversation that needs to be had because it can't be this taboo thing where, you know, men cannot be depressed. You know, guess what? We all get depressed. And uh, what we need to do is we need to know that we're not alone. We need to understand that there is a pathway to get better to get professional help, to uh, get medication if that's what's necessary. 
but you can get better. And mental health is just as real as physical health. I mean, you break an arm, you're going to treat it. You have, you have a bout of clinical depression, you need to treat that too. So I, I appreciate, I hope this makes it in the podcast because it's an important conversation. No, this this will had. definitely make it in the podcast. And I understand exactly where you're at. I've been, uh, you know, I went through over the last uh, two and a half years, uh, a pretty a rough divorce for me personally. And uh, I've struggled with it and I've had pretty dark thoughts. And, uh, you know, the good thing is, is that, I use my outlets such as running and even this podcast, uh, my friends, uh, to talk it out. I don't, uh, I don't keep it inside of me and I know how severe it is and I know how more and more prevalent um, people are coming out and saying, if you're depressed, there's help for you. Right. It's it's all over the place now, and and people should do that. If you're listening to this and you're struggling right now with anything, get help because yeah. you know what? Just like a like the Denver weather, you can have a beautiful day, and all of a sudden you can have a gigantic snowstorm that you know stops everything. But you know what? The sun comes out, snow melts, and you move on. And you know what's <laughs> what's interesting too is you know, and you probably realize this and interviewing different people for your podcast, but extraordinary struggle creates extraordinary people. Right. And what is on the other side of that struggle or that depression, or that downtime or rock bottom, an extraordinary future. And that's just the way that it is. That's the way that it is for all of us. What we have to do is believe that and we don't quit moving forward. We right. don't stop moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. And that comes to the next part. This is a little segment in your book, November of 2014. You were, I think you were volunteering over at the, uh, at the, the shelter. It was a, the pancake breakfast and it was just a regular day. And here's what you said in your book. My mind suddenly went blank. Every thought I had in my head was erased and everything became silent. I didn't hear the showers or conversation in the kitchen next door, or the sound of the laundry machine that was just five feet away from me. Within seconds, I felt something that I cannot describe. It was like being hit by a big wave in the ocean. When that wave hit me and submerged me, time stood still. When I emerged to the surface, after the wave passed over me, I could only think of one thing. I am going to run across America. Yeah, I'm like crying <laughs> because that's it. That's what happened. That's what happened. And it's, you couldn't get that out of your head from that point on. It's insane. Yeah, that was it. Uh, I feel I was called to run across America. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I, from my faith, I know what called me. But at that time, I had no idea what that was about because it was never a pipe dream of mine. Like, I want to go run Leadville or I want to go run Badwater. I've never had a dream, oh, I want to run across America. Yeah. Uh, this came from outside of me. And, but that was it. And it was almost like that scene, there's a scene from Forrest Gump where he's like, I think I'll go for a run. And he jumps right. off the porch and goes running. It was like that. Like I was like on fire and that was it. And I texted my mom because I knew if I didn't tell somebody, I would use my lawyer mind, pick it apart, you know, stuff it way back in the back and never do it. And I thought, if I was called, I am going to do this. And that was, that was the first time in my life, really, 
that I had done something for something else like that, uh, as opposed to for my own self-gratification. I mean, before that, I really worked to take care of myself, my family, my community, what was ever, what, whatever was in my bubble was that what I was going to take care of the rest of it? Well, Darwinism, you know, right. you know to, may the, may the fittest survive. But this, <laughs> this was, <laughs> this was you, you're out of work, right. you're depressed. You got three kids, right. you know, you're going blind, you know, it's insane. And you're going to run across America now. Is this the right time to do? You know, I mean, right. if you sat there and thought about it, you're like, this is insane. But that moment started the clock ticking and 18 months later, uh, I took my first step in that effort. And, uh, you know, there's a huge story about what transpired in those 18 months. Well, you, uh, very well prepared. I know when I was, when I was reading your book, I'm going, man, how are you going to do this? You know, you, you see these people that go run across America. I think you referred to Dean Carnassus, uh, Marshall Ulrich, when he did it with Charlie Engel. Um, they were doing actually a film documentary of, of that, and that was funded. Uh, they, I think they, you put in your book, that cost them about $300,000. And here you were, you, just what you just mentioned, you were unemployed, uh, had three kids, depressed. How in the world were you going to do that? But you started you started going out there and running some pretty, pretty incredible races. Tell me about some of those races, because one of them was Badwater 135, and not a lot of people do Badwater 135. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an incredible 18 months, and to think that Badwater was a training race for something else is mind-boggling. Right. Um, yeah, I just, uh, <clears throat> I started running, so my plan was for the first 12 months out of those 18 months to stack in as many tough races as I could, really for you know physical training, but also for mental training, because I just needed to beat the crap out of myself, because I knew whatever I could put myself through here would not compare to what I would experience out there. So put yourself through the toughest things that you could imagine. And those ended up being you know, a few hundred milers. I think I did the keys there. I did a self-supported 100-mile race around a park, uh, Havelina 100. I did, and then I ran 183 miles across Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Badwater, which is a race in Death Valley, alluded to 135 yeah. miles, you know, in July, so it's super hot. Uh, and then I tried Spartathlon, which is 153 mile race in Greece, and I DNF that, and that was my last prep race, you know, before the Transcon. It was kind of interesting because my training was going great; I was feeling invincible, like physically. I was like, holy cow, my body is totally responding. I've done six you know, difficult 100-mile races, 100-mile-plus races in this time period. It's just fine. Then DNF at Spartathlon, and I got crushed. And there, it wasn't really even a DNF because uh, I pulled myself out of the race. I, I had There's 75 checkpoints in Spartathlon every couple miles, and if you don't make a checkpoint, they pull your bib and you're out of the race. I had gotten to mile 99.5 just before at mountain base, just before you go up and over this trail section with 20 seconds to spare. But I had quit at mile 92, some, you know, seven miles before. And yeah. in my head, I just had my mind, I'm done. But I had 20 seconds to spare. And if I'd have turned, instead of quitting and going over that mountain, I don't know if I would have made it or not, but I quit. And that was, 
huge in my mind. And I think I write in the book, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know if anybody will ever understand what that DNF meant to me. And that DNF, the reason why it hit me so hard was because I quit. I quit. And uh, that was before, that was the lead up to, you know, the, one of the biggest training runs before right. you run across America. And I quit. Right. I quit. And I was crushed. And I, all I kept thinking was, oh, my God, you know, this run across America, am I going to do the same damn thing there? And uh, I, I, I can't. You know, I, quitting is not an option. And uh, so after Spartathlon, I had six months straight of, you know, whatever, transcon specific training. I didn't right. put any more races in there. And, uh, but that was always ringing around the back of my head, frankly, until I got to New York. Yeah. There was a common theme that I recognized in your book. When you had some really rough periods of time, you always put hard pressure on yourself and you, you felt like a failure. You know, I never got that when I was reading your chapters. You put that in there, but I felt that the stuff that you've put in your chapters have been very remarkable. But I was kind of surprised that you had that in there so much. I always, uh, I got to tell you, but my whole life growing up, I've always felt second best. Mm -hmm. I've always felt not good enough, unworthy, if you will. I'm not sure what the psychological term is or whatever. You have to talk to my psychologist. But um, I've always felt that way. And that was up until, you know, a uh, certain point. And that was probably until I finished the transcon. And I don't think it's so much that I finished the transcon. I think it was that finally I did something for something else. And I went through this whole thing. And I, I did that. And uh, I, I gave everything. I mean, I risked dying. Uh, and I knew that that was a risk several times on that transcon run. Yeah, I could have died, just hit by cars. And uh, after, after I did that, um, I don't know why the feel, it's not like I'm the best or something like that, but it's like that, that shadow or that doubt. Uh, I, don't, I don't have that. And that's, like, that's a phenomenon for me for like the last three plus years, just a little over three years. And uh, I'm not sure where that came from. I'm not sure if it came from faith or it came from, you know, some total of life's experiences. But uh, I don't feel like a failure at this point. And I felt like a failure before. And I think that's an important point too, psychologically. It's actually kind of the basis of a second book uh, that I've written, which is we're all going to fail. But right. just because we fail, it doesn't mean we're a failure. Exactly. And you know the 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 theme of like all my speaking. You mentioned that before. Really, is that we succeed through failing, and that that's just so important. You know, and that's the hero's story. That's life's journey, right. which is we're going to hit adversity, we're going to fall down, but we're going to dust ourselves off, and we're going to keep going forward. And the storm will eventually pass, and blue skies are going to come out again. And we're going to move forward. And everybody is capable of that. Right. When we're in the storm is the time when it's easy to fight with the ones we love, to become unraveled. When you're in the storm, remain patient. Right. Stay calm. Let the storm pass. And it will pass. And when blue skies come out, that's when you start running again. And uh, I just, I, I can't, you know, that... That simple message is my life, is you succeed through failure in every area. 
you do well your transcon run uh journey i'm gonna say a journey because you can call it a run but it's more of a journey yeah. uh life journey for you it just had to have been a an absolutely incredible experience at the beginning your mom was your your crew yeah. i mean that was that was it you had your mom and your brother gave you an um an odyssey to use uh, that was your that was your vehicle to go across the united states you tried to get uh, some funding from some of the the organizations the blind organizations uh, one of them would have but they wanted you to wait 18 months so they could do more marketing you, you just didn't you were trying to put calculations together and uh, I think you came up with around $30,000 that it was going to cost you to do this, but that was just a rough estimate. Yeah. You know, you said you had credit cards, so you were going to use that if you needed to use that. And then you and your mom ended up driving over to Santa Monica, California. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, it was a ragtag expedition to try to figure out how you're going to, how I was going to fund it and the logistics. And I think you mentioned it, you know, I did I didn't have money. Uh, that was a that was a big lesson to learn. You know, I was going out on a flyer. I was like, I'll just have to figure out how to pay for this thing afterward. You know, I added up my credit cards. And I figured you know, if I went over my maximum of my credit cards, I'd beg mom for to use hers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I was begging. Uh, I had asked for uh, friends and family to help me, and that was tremendously humbling and humiliating. And I felt dehumanized having to do that. But if I didn't beg, uh, I would not be able to accomplish this How thing. Do you, what do you, what's your definition of begging now? Because you were doing something yeah, that I, was pretty incredible. I felt, so I felt like I was begging. I felt like I couldn't take care of myself, my kids, and what I needed to do to continue living. And uh, that was a true statement because I couldn't pay for the place where I lived. Uh, continue to put food on the table and pay for a $30,000 expense over two months. Right. I have the mind to do it. And uh, you know, I felt like the person that you see on the street corner with their cardboard sign because I put out a Facebook post saying, I need money to make this happen. And I remember before I did that, I had conversation with a couple people that are close to me and they're like, if it's your dream, you gotta pay for it yourself. And I thought, I can't, I, there's, it won't happen. Right. And I was backed in the corner and uh, that's what I did. And when I first took off, I think there were like, maybe like 2000 bucks people had given. Right. I was like, well, that's a long way from And 30. one of them was a female friend of yours that gave you a thousand dollars. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. That was the first pledge or donation I had. And I remember I called her up and I said, I can't take this from you. I barely even knew her. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's like, you need to take every nickel that anybody will give you. Exactly. She, she told me, um, you know, I'm not going to do something like this, and this is close as I'll get to something. So take every nickel, and and go. And uh, it was very uneasy and unnerving to to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, you also um, in in your run, most people would just run across you know, the United States, but you had a goal that you needed to do it in 60 days. Uh, you didn't want to be away from your children yeah. long. And so you figured it out that you had to do about 51 miles, 50 to 51 miles a day, yeah. 60 days. Yeah. You did that. And, uh, you know, with a shoestring, 
you know, shoestring budget. Budget and your mom. Yeah, I didn't, and I didn't realize that uh, it was so aggressive of a goal. I just figured, you know, I ran 100-mile races. I was like, I don't know what 50-mile back-to-back would do, but I did the math, 3,000 miles, 60 days, 50 miles a day. That's what I got to do. But I, was, uh, I had asked for help from Marshall Ulrich, and I'd reached out to him for months. Finally, I found myself having a conversation with him live, and he asked me, you know, well, what's your goal? What are you going to try to average? I told him 50, 50 miles a day, and all of a sudden there was silence. Uh, you know, I was thinking, I was like, did I say something wrong? And yeah. then he explained to me, because he had crossed previously at 58 and a half miles a day, which was the third fastest crossing at the time. And he told me, Jason, that's world class. I was like, what? And he told me only two people in history had ever crossed at 60 miles a day. And only four people had crossed at 50 miles a day or more. And I was attempting to do that. And then I have this visual impairment and I only got a one person crew and he kind of looked at me like, you're insane. And, uh, you know, to your point, I, I, I did not know what I was going after. It was a self-imposed goal, but that's what I said I was going to do. And by God, that's what I was going to do. Oh, so, it, it uh, came out loud and clear. It's through the whole yeah. journey out there. And you had a friend that uh, jumped in, Carly, who somehow you, you were trying to figure out how to map out a course. And she jumped in and she did it. Yeah, so there there are just some angels that come, mm-hmm. uh, and Carly was one of those. Twenty uh, eight year old something uh, heard about what I was doing, volunteered to help out, and uh, I was struggling with a core with a route, you know, for eighteen months. In three weeks before I was going to take off, Carly she'd been helping with it for a couple months at this point in time, but she she just went home one weekend, did it, and she's like, Jason, click this link. I got something to show you. I clicked the link. It's a flyover of a route across America. I was like, oh my God, how'd this happen? You know, broken up into 50-day increments. Yeah. And then we rerouted another two times. So we did three routes. Uh, and with two weeks to go, I finally had my course that I was right. going to do to run across America. Right, exactly. Yeah. And you were doing more, mostly you were on the, the mid to, to the southern part of the U.S. and then shot up yeah. uh, to the east. And th- there was a reason, you had a reason that you wanted to do this, too. You put a reason behind it, which is to bring awareness to the blind. Uh, you have in your book that 70% of the blind population are unemployed, 66 have obesity issues, and two times the rate of ge- uh, depression. depression for the general population. Yeah. So you use that, and then you also, there was an organization down in Colorado Springs, a fellow by the name of Mark Lucas, that was kind of another angel for you, yeah. that uh, jumped in and, and, and gave some help during this. U.S. Association of Blind Athletes. Right. Uh, just a tremendous organization. They actually host the U.S. Blind Marathon Championships too. And uh, that's an organization that I found when I was in my depression. I remember I had Googled uh, blind ultra runners, and what came up was this guy named Richard Hunter. Uh-huh. And I hunted this guy down, actually. Uh, I ended up on a phone call with him, and he's a tremendous man. He has the same eye disease that I have. Uh, he was a school counselor. He's actually a mountain of a man, a Marine, and um, but he struggled the same way that I have. He's been a mentor for me for how to go blind gracefully and to make it a strength instead of a weakness. And uh, Richard's the one actually who suggested that I contact U.S. Association of Blind Athletes. And uh, what U.S. Association of Blind Athletes agreed to do was to take donations in for anybody who donated. 
And then they would first cover my expenses and take anything in addition that went off, you know, went over the top. And, um, you know, there wasn't, they went on a limb. They, they, they believed in me when nobody yeah. else really would believe in me. And, uh, you know, the, the whole story, the whole journey is just, it's a story of a motley bunch of strangers coming together right. through forces beyond us right. to accomplish this, this amazing thing. You know, I mean, you know, you're sitting here interviewing me, but every person that you talk to, you know, my mom should be sitting here though. Th this is not something that occurred because of one person. There's no way something like this happens with one person. Right. Uh, it, there's so many different pieces to the puzzle and people that were involved with this. I was, I am just the fortunate person who had the, the pleasure to interact with all these people. And uh, you know, that, that I think is the true lesson for this journey is that we don't journey alone, we journey together. Can't say you had a team, but a team appeared throughout your journey. Yeah. And of course, teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. So um, just a couple things that you take from your journey. I know there was one, and I told you that there was a, a couple of stories that made me cry. We already talked about a couple of them, but one that, that really hit me, it was semi-early in your your journey. You were still out in the West, but you're, you're doing pretty well. You're getting your time in, you're getting your miles in, but then you got some bad news from a woman you were seeing that she gave you the, I can't, be in the relationship anymore yeah i i've been there and i know that that deflates me and and i know being a runner that i didn't even feel like getting out of bed you know to even do a mile was almost impossible yeah but that was a challenge that you had out there yeah. one of them and that that kind of brought a little bit of tears to my eyes yeah well it was a you know it was a breakup that's actually a hard story uh for this lady to hear as well. And I don't want anybody um, to think that, you know, any breakup is one-sided because, you know, it was our relationship right. and it was a two-way thing. Um, but I think it just goes to just, you know, humanity. And Marshall Ulrich had told me when that, when I began and I was going to go try a transcon that, you know, I would not finish with the same group that I started with, or you know, you know, relationships would change, and not necessarily a, you know, a girlfriend or what have you, but that could be friendships, it could be, uh, you know, close relationships with family members, it could be any, anything, because what a transcon will do, and how alone you are, and the support you need, and the strain that puts on everybody, is beyond anything that can be understood. Like this situation you're talking about, this breakup with this lady, the strain that this transcon put on her, I had totally failed to be supportive or compassionate or anything like that. Why? Because I was just trying to survive. Like there was nothing left to give to another person, but actually there is. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, it was tough. It's, you know, Breakups are tough uh, in any way. And this person, you know, was 
extremely important to me and still remains extremely important to me. And at this point too, I'm glad to say, you know, we're friends. Yeah. That's and, good. Uh, yeah. We've, we've grown through that. That's a piece of our story and our journey. Nice. But you know, as things like that happen, I think it forces you to grow stronger. It does. And uh, you know, I, I hope that friendship stays in place, you know, forever. No, you kept, you she's kept a great moving. woman. You kept moving on after that, which was really awesome. Can you just tell me a couple fun little highlights or something, some memories, one or two. What I recommend is for our listeners to read the book because you go almost state by state um, on on your journey across and you have stories in each state. But if you could tell me a couple that really stick out for you that really, you know, you'll never forget. So they both have the same theme, the kindness of strangers. And as I was running across America, I had these, you know, I had some silly incidents happen you know, where you about got hit or people throw firecrackers at you or whatever. There's maybe like 20 knuckleheads that I encountered in over 3,000 miles. But I encountered hundreds of thousands of people who are tremendously supportive. So the kindness of strangers, like 99.99% of what I encountered was absolutely amazing. One great story I had was with this, this guy, Bob. And when I was running down the highway, people would always, and I ran against traffic, people would always pull up and stop and they would ask me, you know, if I needed a ride, they're like, where'd your car break down? You know, we'll give you a ride the next town or did you run out of gas? I was like, no, no, it's okay. I'm running. And they're like, you know, where are you running to? And I was like in Kansas and I'd tell them, you know, I'm running to New York city. And then there would be like silence, you know? (laughs) And I did this one time with this one guy and, you know, he whipped a U-turn and pulled over on the side of the road in the shoulder. He's screaming across the road. Hey, come over here. So I was like, okay, you know, it was a two lane highway. So I dart across the highway when there's no cars and I come up and the guy's like tearing up, like he can barely talk and he pulls out his wallet. He's like, give me your hand. So I put my hand in there. He's put something in my hand, curls my fingers over and is grabbing, clenching my hands tight. And he's like, now he can barely talk. He's like fully crying. And all he says is don't stop. And then I step back and he drives off and he had emptied his wallet and he had given me like a hundred dollars, just emptied his wallet, put it in my hand and, you know, <laughs> telling him I was running to New York was inspiring enough. He didn't know anything about any of the story at all, but he was just like, don't stop. And uh, that was, I mean, you know, to this day, I wish I could find the guy. Yeah. Uh, the, there was this other really great story that includes my mom. And it was fine. We were in Pennsylvania. so about 2,500 miles across America and we're coming up to this T intersection. And as I'm running up there, there's this guy who's walking out and he has a white t-shirt, suspenders, dark pants, kind of a, he's probably about five foot, three inches tall, Caucasian, has like long gray hair, chrome dome. And he's coming at me with one arm up and he's like, hey, you. And I'm like on the shoulder of the road and I'm like, yeah, yes, sir. You know, I was trying to be respectful. I didn't know what I was gonna encounter. I was like, He's like, I know who you are. I was like, what? And he, he grabs me and he takes me in this huge embrace and goes to kiss me. And I turn you know, my cheek just in time yeah. so I don't get the, this mouth to mouth. Right, right. And he's got this bear hug on me. He's like, you're Jason Romero. I was like, yes, sir, I am. He's like, I've been following you since you've been in California. That was 2,500 miles before. Wow. You know, he's like, I know. I'm a Vietnam veteran. The government should be supporting this. We need more stories like you. You amaze me. Where's your mother? And I was like, this guy wow. really has been following me. 
So then he lets me go and I'm kind of laughing inside because I'm like, he's going to go kiss my mom. So I'm like, she's right back there. And my mom's, you know, had parked the van because she didn't know if I was getting accosted or what was happening. So she, he goes and, you know, before my mom could say anything, he's like, I got $5 here. You take this and you, you, you help this get you across America. He grabs my mom, gives her a big old kiss. Uh, and, you know, he just sat there and told us the story about how he'd been, he'd seen a news story about us when we started in California. Uh, he'd followed, you know, he knew people who had macular degeneration, who had gone blind and stuff like this. And it was just huge to him. And to him, he's like, you know, everybody should be supporting this type of en endeavor, you know, and we need to hear stories like this. And, uh, you know, he's, he's like, I'm American. I'm as American as they come. And this is what we stand for, for our country. And, uh, you know, just like that type of love and help is right. all over America. And sometimes when we're just like walking around, you know, drudging around on the bike path, we, we don't realize that. But guess what? It's everywhere. It's within each and every one of us. We just need to let it out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's got to be great stories. And you even had, you were mesmerized by seeing some people walk in the other direction and found out that they were walking across the United States. Yeah, you know, that, that's a great story. I was, uh, and this is actually a, a tremendous story. A fellow's name is Mike. So I was on this back country road and across the highway, there was this other guy who looked like homeless, had bags on his front and back and, you know, head draped, long sleeve shirt. And he's walking and I, you know, I'm like, this is strange. You know, it's out of the ordinary because, you know, there's nobody on highways except for me. And uh, he was like, like probably 10 to 15 miles away from either the closest city because I just come from and I was going to. So I went over and, and talked to him. I was like, hey, is everything okay? And you know, I got a van with supplies up there. Do you need a ride or do you need stuff? He's like, no, no, you know, my name's Mike. And uh, he tells me, yeah, my name's Mike. You know, I'm walking from New York to California. I remember I was like, no shit. I was wow. like, I'm Jason, I'm running from California, New York. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to be great buds. Like we kept in touch as he yeah. continued on. And he was finishing a Santa Monica Pier right where I had started. Where you started, yeah. And uh, you know what's, what's a cool story about Mike is he ended up being a business owner up in Ohio. He had got his business to enough of a point where he's like, you know, I got to go do for something for myself. And he started in Coney Island. He walked across America. And he was the last person to donate to my campaign. And he donated 500 bucks. And when I came back and looked at all my expenses for the Transcon run, it was like 23 grand. And with Mike's donation, it was it basically, I eclipsed my expenses by like 200 bucks. So for donations, it was 23, 200 and the expenses were 23 grand. Yeah. And it was like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Yeah. Uh, and the, so Mike and I have stayed in touch as times have gone by. And Mike is actually walking around the world right now. Oh my gosh. And he is in China. And uh, I think I'm gonna go meet him when he's in Europe. This could be, oh. you know, in like another year or so. Yeah. But uh, he's a tremendous What's dude. his time frame to? Uh, I think he's looking at probably like three years. Three years to do the yeah. whole thing, yeah. Yeah, and Man. Uh, just, you know, amazing. Yeah, you, you meet the most amazing people. And that's the uncanniest thing because documented, and known there are less than 300 people that have crossed America on foot, meaning right. walking or running, what have you. That number probably, you know, it's probably less than 400 because there's some folks that just go and nobody knows, right? But it's a very uncommon, rare thing. And to encounter somebody who's doing that, going in the opposite direction, I mean, it's just, 
it's insane. I mean, the, right. you know, do the math. The chances are astronomical. Tell me about you. You're, you, you're the only blind human being that has ever ran Transcon yeah. and finished. Yep. Uh, the first and only. First and, and only. And I hope that is not the tagline. I hope that changes before I die. Yeah, uh, because there are tre- some there are some really tremendous blind athletes out there, and you know, just athletes with challenges in general. I mean, right. I've, I've been fortunate to to meet these folks. You know, people are tremendously more gifted uh, than anything I could ever hope to be. Um, I just hope you know that 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 happens. And uh, but the other thing too that I do want to say about the run. Uh, was that you know the average was fifty one and a half miles a day at the right. time I crossed? It was the seventh fastest crossing. Now it's the tenth fastest crossing, and that's compared to you know everybody. But there's an important thing here, and that that is I think that uh, perceptions need to be shattered. And when I tell people this story, you know, one they're amazed that the feat was just done because they can't comprehend how do you do like you know just under two marathons a day nonstop with no days off. That's wow enough. But then you do that with this little tunnel, right? And then, you know, if you read the book, you understand this minuscule budget without support, you know, you're in depression, all this other stuff. I think that's the story. Breaking down barriers. This, you know, I speak now, and when I go to schools and speak, my beginning of the of the talk is I put the word impossible on the screen, impossible. And I submit to all of those kids that that word does not exist and it's been mispronounced and it's actually pronounced, I'm possible. I'm possible. I am apostrophe M space possible. And that is, I hope, what the real story of this is, which is absolutely everything and anything is possible if you choose to believe. Right, And I just had this conversation with one of my kids yesterday. And it was, you know, there was a statement like, I can't do this. And my statement back was, well, if you say you can't, you most certainly will not. But if you say you can, you most certainly will. Tell me how I can support you. Because that decision about whether your life is going to go left or go right is your decision and is a decision. We are not a victim of circumstance or what goes on outside of us. We make our own story. I mean, you you hear from all these different speakers, right? You write your own story, all this other stuff. You know what? I have lived this stuff. I've lived it. All those people, these motivational people, they're right. We do write our own story. We just need to choose to. And the important thing is when we're down in those difficult times, when we're in those difficult times, we need to surround ourselves with really exceptional people. We should do that always. But it's even more important when we're in difficult times because it's so easy to be negative. And it's so easy to find yourself, you know, with people who are gossiping or this negative stuff. There's no place for that if you're pursuing a dream. If you're going to do something epic, or if you want to just live a really epic, outstanding life, there's no room for that. You right. don't have room for that. Right. You need to surround yourself with tremendous people. Everything and anything is possible. And if you believe that, that's what it's going to be. That is exactly what it's going to be. I, I get into so many different arguments with people 
philosophically. When I hear the word in this house right here, my kids are not allowed to use the word can't or impossible. I mean, if they want to set me off, that's my trigger. Yeah. I mean, because to me, when you use that word, you have decided you've quit before you've even tried. Right. Before you've even begun, you've thrown in the towel. And, and there needs to be an acknowledgement of that. And that's something, you know, sometimes my kids get ticked off at me like, Dad, I don't need a motivational speaker right now. I was like, this isn't motivational speaking. This is this life. Is, yeah, this is telling you the truth. This is the way that it works. And if in your head, and you know, the coolest thing has been, a lot of people ask whether my kids are like, you know, athletic, are they running, you know, all this stuff. They're like, no, not at all. Because my kids never, they were scared that I would want them to do the level of things that I do. They're like, I don't want to run across America. I don't want to run through some desert. But what's cool is they've done their own thing. My oldest now is in Colorado Springs at Colorado College by where Pikes Peak is. And now she takes her friends up the incline, not because I tell them, mm-hmm. but she's like adventuring. She's like, you know, she's taken one of her friends that lives in, in, is from Mexico City, took her up the incline. I mean, just tremendous. Wow. And she took out, she this past weekend, um, she went out for a run. Now she runs. She didn't run when she was here, when we were living together, but now she went to college and she runs. And she just took off one morning and she ended up doing her first half marathon. And uh, she just, you know, didn't stop. It was That's great. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really amazing. But I think modeling, you know, the way that we live, people may not agree with this at the time, but they're always watching. They're always watching. And the way that we live our life is it's if you want it to be meaningful, it's important that you live it the right way. And uh, yeah, I think just like this larger little soliloquy I just went on is a, a statement about integrity. And it's that you need to you know do the right thing, even when nobody else is looking because everybody's watching. Right. No, I think it's important and everybody needs motivation, yeah. you know, to get them going and needs something if they don't believe it at the time, somebody to tell them that they can do it, to give them that motivation to go forward. Yeah, I you need know? it. I, I, we all need it. We're human beings. I mean, it, we, we have to rely on others for certain things in our life, but it's our responsibility to live our lives. But our conversation today has been extremely motivating to me. Hmm. And I'm going to take stuff away from this for my personal life. And not running wise. I mean, it's going to be for me to continually move on, you know, and live a better life. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a better person because I met you wow. and I read your book and I, I, I know your story. I feel like I'm a better person because of it. And I thank you very much for that. That's a huge compliment, Jim. I don't even know what to say. It's, I'm it's, it's don't be humbled. It's just human, human. Human to human. Thanks, man. All right. So I got one other one other thing to ask you. Well, first of all, two things. For yep. what's what's next? I mean, I know you've done a lot since the Transcon. You've done you just did Leadville. Uh, you just did the Bear Chase. Uh, Leadville. You were shooting for twenty five mile or twenty five hours for the belt buckle, but you got twenty six hours in. Yeah. You're gonna go back and try it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna keep. I love Leadville because it's a hometown race and. Uh, my running mentor, Scott Gordon, ran that thing 11 times. And at 10, you get like the really big belt buckle. Right. Uh, but 11, you get this jacket. And that was a big deal for Scott. And Scott, I've looked up to for a long time. So I want to be able to do something that Scott has done too. So I'll probably 
go back there for 11 times and yeah, I'm going to shoot for under 25 hours. Go for it. 26 hours was a big PR for me. So I was just happy. No, that's uh, awesome. That. Um, what's next in the future? You know, this year uh, I'm 49 now. So next year I'll turn 50 and I want to do something, you know, big there. Like, you know, and you know, I'm still fit at 50. Uh, I'm dreaming up some different stuff. You know, I've toyed around and talked to U.S. Association of Blind Athletes, maybe a month of marathons. So a marathon a day in a different city um, across the country. Uh, I've toyed around with a double crossing of Badwater. It would be uh, a solo run. Uh, I have a friend in California that I'm looking at uh, possibly running the Pacific Coast Highway and breaking that up into different segments. And nice. With her. Uh, I got a whole bunch of you know different things yeah. going on. One of the things I really like to do is I like to have a project and help somebody run their first 100 miler. And last year, actually, I did that with one of my college roommates, one of the guy who unscrewed the light bulb. Yeah. And this is a guy who actually, he's my brother now. And uh, he ended up coming out to uh, the race I ended up qualifying for. Boston, went to the Boston Marathon when I ran it, came out, crewed me at Leadville three years, went out to Badwater and crewed me there, brought his whole family and drove them 10 hours to meet me at the very end when I was running across America. And then uh, he had a situation happen in his life where he thought, you know, he had a loss uh, of a person very close to him. And he thought, you know, I need to go just cleanse myself and a hundred miles seems like the right thing to do. Right. And uh, a few years later after that promise, he actually did that. And uh, that was a tremendous, it was a, it was a tremendous way to give back something that, you know, I've accumulated all this knowledge about running long and to be able to give it back to somebody to, to let them do something like that is, it was tremendously rewarding. So I hope, I have another person who comes along who I get to help with uh, their first 100 miler. Oh, I'm sure there'll be somebody that comes along. Does, uh, does your college buddy, does he call you Jason or Chip? <laughs> no, this is the one that calls me Jason. The, right. one, the one that calls me Chip is about to have, to, about to have a, or his wife's about to have a baby in a okay. day or so. <laughs> All right. And you said you had another book coming out? I do. Uh, I actually got the manuscript with me right here. It's called uh, The Success Cycle. And you developed that, right? Yep, that's something that I developed. And uh, as I went out and I was doing speaking, you know, a lot of my speaking had to do with the first 40% of it is the adventure story and how do you go through struggle, how do you overcome that? And then uh, depending on which business had hired me, I have a business background. So, you know, if they were talking about change or leadership or some type of, you know, restructuring or an innovation or, you know, they needed imagination, I would tailor my talk to meet whatever their needs were to make sure it was entertaining, also inspiring, and had a good business basis uh, and background. But after I finished with these talks, the same question always came up from people, which was, how do I do that? How do I do what you did? And to me, it was just, you know, it's obvious. Right. Uh, but I realized it wasn't obvious to everybody. So, I created a slide in my presentations that I call the success cycle. And I would talk to that in my talks. I'd say, okay, this is what I did. I explained it, here's an inspiring story. This is the success cycle. This is how I did what I did. But you know, I'd spend like two, three minutes on it, but that was never enough for my audience. And that was the resounding question was, you know, the, how do you overcome pain? How do you overcome fear? How does a dream become a dream from just being a thought? How do you breathe life into a dream? How, you know, if you fail, is it over? Or can you still get back up, get back into it? What benefits are there from failure? All these different things. So I put together this slide that's called the success cycle. 
And from all those questions, I was like, these all need to be answered. This is like what my audience is asking me. So I wrote a book called The Success Cycle. And it's really, tail- you know, it came from questions from my business audiences. And that's probably, well, how I'll brand this and um, make it entertaining. Uh, but, you know, that's what my talks are now when places hire me out for to talk about the success cycle. But the fact is, you know, it's going to be a pocket-sized book. Uh, be a hundred pages pocket size means it'll be like a small one, like a four by six, right, something right. can fit into a pocket. Yep. And there's specific chapters on fear, on pain, on having the dream, on failure, on resolve, on resilience, and these particular things and you know strategies and explaining basically how do you succeed? How can you make any intangible dream, any thought, how can you transform that into a manifested reality, something that you've experienced and has happened or something that you can touch and feel? And I believe that you know, that can happen for everybody and anybody. So that's, that's book number two. That's great. Any, any time frame when that's going to come out? It's going to happen in 2020. The manuscript is done. Uh, I do need to, I want another couple edit reviews and then there's some different uh, illustrations I need to get done. Hopefully, hopefully I can pull my daughter in to do those, but we'll see. I'll keep an eye on that. And then when it comes in, I'll put it in the show notes, you know, where people can order Sounds it and great. I'll mention it. Um, and you're doing speaking now. Uh, you get booked up pretty good. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do pretty well. I'm happy with what's taking place right now. Always uh, trying to get more. And, um, you know, my, my goal is to get in front of as many people as possible to tell this story. And the reason why I do that is because, one, it's not easy to tell the story. It takes me like two or three days to recover. But what I can tell you is after I tell the story, it touches people. And you know, I was just up in Vail a couple of weeks ago. And after I finished speaking, there was a six foot plus man, big man, came up to me and just hugged me and was crying. And it's times like that. And he, he tells me, you told me exactly what I needed to know right now. And a lot of times after I go and speak, I'll speak to schools or I speak at juvenile detention centers. I do a lot of speaking for companies, things like that. But people will have that same type of statement. And, you know, we're all struggling. Right. And I think when you get a person who gets up on stage, who's done something that everybody believes is like this you know, miracle or huge feat, but they're still human. They're still vulnerable. And the stories told with vulnerable authenticity, that's something that needs to happen more right. often. And I think about that, you know, I go out and speak and people give me a standing ovation and I'm crying at the end and I feel like I just want to shrivel up. But there's an audience of 600 people that are giving a standing ovation. What is that ovation for? Right. Everybody has a story. Anybody could get up on that stage and tell their story if they just told it authentically, vulnerably, in all of their success and all of their pain and their shame. If we will all do that, that's what they're, that's what they're applauding. And I think by going out and doing what I'm doing and putting myself out there, a lot of people are like, wow. Like people will come up to me and share things very personal with me that I guarantee they'd never share with anybody else. Exactly. They, they don't even know me. One of my friends, after I gave my first talk, I remember I was a mess. And I called up one of my friends 
from college, I told her, I was like, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And she's, she encouraged me, you know, to re, rethink that decision. And she said, you know, being vulnerable is one of the scariest things ever. But when you are vulnerable, it gives other people permission to be vulnerable. Right. And I think there's another statement there. It inspires other people to be vulnerable and authentic. And that is what I've experienced that happens when I go and I speak to these crowds. So the more people that I can get into, great. And the other thing, you know, I love to get in front of companies. Why? Because they pay me. I mean, that's how I make my yeah, living yeah, yeah. now. Right. But when I was in corporate America, I think about this. How many times did I get up in front of my team and deliver a speech about how we're going to go out and shatter this year's plan and right. do this. And would anybody give me a standing ovation? No. You know, they showed up mostly because you know, I had to. I'm kind of funny guy or whatever. But, yeah. you, you know, leaders are not inspiring their teams like we need to. And that's the reason to bring in somebody from the outside. And that's my conversation a lot of times with these companies when they hire me is your leaders, when they get in front of their own teams, they need to be receiving standing ovations. They need, what is that a sign of? That's a sign of authenticity, vulnerability, and connection. Nobody's going to give you a standing ovation if they don't feel connected to you, if they have not journeyed with you, if they have not become emotionally attached, nobody's going to care that much. But I have 30 to 45 minutes to get on a stage and try to connect with an entire audience, be vulnerable and authentic. And if at the end, if I have done my job, the audience will be impacted. Maya Angelou said, this is what I thought of. I read this quote when I first started my speaking. And she said, they'll never remember what you say. They'll never remember what you did. But they will always remember how you made them feel. And that is a true statement with anybody that we encounter in our life. So if I ever end up being a speaker that can't help my audience to feel with that journey, I don't belong up on that stage. Well, it's an, it's an emotional thing too, because you're putting out so much emotion based on the reality yeah. of what you have gone through that people connect in with that emotion. It's a very, very powerful thing i you know if you watch a ted talk you're gonna you're gonna find a, a ted talk that's gonna really hit home with you and it's probably because you emotionally attached yeah. with that person yeah and i i think that's it and you're very emotional and you're very open and you're very um you just say the reality of it you, you don't sugarcoat it or try to whatever you just come out and people understand that and people feel that you know maybe it's something that's they're going through at the same time they can relate to your emotion uh -huh. and that's why you get those standing ovations uh -huh. and you're not doing it for a standing ovation you're doing it because you generally care and love you're not you're not up there just to give a speech and walk away you're doing it because you want to change somebody's life yeah yeah of course and i can tell that from our yeah. discussion what why would you want to get up there and share all that stuff in front of a bunch of strangers. And there's some people will, that will be critical of you. I mean, I've received criticism and it's, it's hard. And you're just kind of like, wow, I just put it all out there. But you gotta, you gotta have faith and belief. And my thought always is, if I connect with and I impact one person that I'm doing my job and to rewind, to be able to close this out, you know, I said that I felt like I was called to run across America 
in hindsight, in looking at this entire thing, I don't think the calling was to run across America. I think the calling was to do what I'm doing right now, which is to get up on stage and speak and spread meaningful information to this world. The Run Across America just gave me the platform right. to be able to be invited to do what I'm doing right now. Because exactly. I got to tell you, what I do right now is probably harder than what I was doing out there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's making a difference. Yeah. I hope so. That's my prayer. All right. One, one, one final thing, and this has nothing to do with you, but I just love it. It's in your book. I just, huh? I love this one part. Please, please tell, tell everybody about Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one of the coolest stories ever. So it's a mom story and it's the perfect way to close out because actually this podcast should not even be with me. It should be with my mom. Uh, she is the true hero behind this entire thing, behind my life. So my mom, uh, when she was married to my stepdad, my mom used to smoke like three packs of cigarettes a day. My stepfather smoked cigars. You know, my clothes always smelled like smoke and that caused me to not smoke. But uh, my mom had went to like the local 7-Eleven to buy a pack of cigarettes one day. And as she was uh, in there, the man in front of her, it was taking a long time for him to check out because he had a traveler's check and the clerk wouldn't accept the traveler's check. And you know, my mom's kind of like, God, this is taking forever. You know, I just need to get my cigarettes. And uh, she overheard what was going on. And the, the, the clerk says, you know, I'm not taking this traveler's check. The traveler's check says it's from Clint Eastwood. And guy's like, I am Clint Eastwood. He's like, whatever. So my mom's like, excuse me, you know, I need to get my cigarette. I'm gonna buy both cigarettes. So let me just buy his cigarettes and my cigarettes and let's just move on. And my mom's like, no nonsense. Yeah. So she pays the tab, whatever. And the guy, you know, who she bought the cigarettes for is like, that was really nice. He's, and he's like, well, I'm having a party I'm at this hotel right by here across the street. Why don't you come by, you know, it's on Saturday and you know, bring a guest, bring somebody with you and you know, whatever. So she comes home, tells the story. She's like, yeah, there's supposed to be some party. My stepdad goes, okay, well, we'll go to the party. You know, it's at the penthouse suite of this hotel. Let's go check it out. So she goes to the party. Turns out to be, it was Clint Eastwood. My mom bought Clint Eastwood a pack of cigarettes. He was in town filming Any Which Way But Loose. Yeah. And they were filming a scene at the Zanzibar, uh, which is not too far from my house where it exists right now. It's gone now. But uh, that's how my mom met Clint Eastwood. And she didn't know it was Clint Eastwood time didn't recognize him uh, didn't know had no clue only when she showed up at the party did she she's like oh my god it's Clint Eastwood wow that is yeah. so, I cracked up when I yeah. read that I thought that was the greatest story <laughs> yeah. well that's a good way to close it Jason thank you so much I certainly enjoyed this very much and I know everybody else thank well. you Jim I really appreciate your time and interest well, there you go, Jason Romero. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. There was so much we discussed and you heard how open Jason is and what a motivating person and positive attitude that he has and what a wonderful father caring so much for his children. And since our conversation, I've already incorporated some of the things that he said into my life. And my hope is that someday you too can meet Jason. All right, for more about Jason, you can go to the show notes at Feel Good Running 
www.jeffrey.com. And I really want you to go there because you can order his book. There is a link in there to do so. He has a video called Running Vision. You can order that. There's a link for that. There are links to Jason's websites where you can connect up with him. Maybe you'd like to have him as a speaker at one of your events or school or a corporate conference. And there are links to his social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And I threw in some pictures of Jason that I think you'll really enjoy. So there you go. There's no reason why you shouldn't go to the show notes at feelgoodrunning.com and find more out about Jason Romero. Here is a running quote to keep you inspired and feeling good. All right, runners, it's that time. This episode's motivational and inspirational quote, and it's from our very special guest this episode, Jason Romero. I took it off of his website, so I hope he doesn't mind. And it goes like this. Wake up every day and commit to be outstanding. Let me read that to you again. Wake up every day and commit to be outstanding. Now, that can be part of life. It can be part of your running, but it is a great quote to live your life by. All right, that does it for this episode of Feel Good Running. Now, just remember, share, 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 share. Yeah, I said it four times. Share five times. Please share this episode and actually feel good running in general with all your running friends, your non-running friends, your family, acquaintances, and everybody you think that would enjoy it. It would really help us out to grow the show. And on that note, remember to just show up and always, always feel good about your running. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please consider sharing this podcast with your running friends and spread the feel-good running vibe around you. Head over to feelgoodrunning.com to access all the links and resources mentioned on the show. Until next time, keep motivated, keep focused, and keep on running. It is sure to make you, well, feel good.